If you abide in my word, we'll start at verse 12 and focus on 31 to 36. John 8, 12. Again, therefore, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in the darkness, but shall have the light of life. The Pharisees, therefore, said to him, You are bearing witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You people judge according to the flesh. I am not judging anyone. But even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For I am not alone in it, but I and he who sent me. Even in your law it has been written that the testimony of two men is true. I am he who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. And so they were saying to him, Where is your father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. He said therefore again to them, I go away and you shall seek me and shall die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. Therefore the Jews were saying, Surely he will not kill himself, will he, since he says, Where I am going, you cannot come? And he was saying to them, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I said therefore to you that you shall die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you shall die in your sins. And so they were saying to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, What have I been saying to you from the beginning? I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true, and the things which I heard from him, these I speak to the world. They did not realize that he had been speaking to them about the Father. Jesus therefore said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and I do nothing on my own initiative. But I speak these things as the Father taught me, and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. Jesus, therefore, was saying to those Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's offspring and have never yet in, yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you shall become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. And the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. If therefore the son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's offspring, yet you seek to kill me, because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with my father, therefore you also do the things which you heard from your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you are Abraham's children... Do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. They said to him, 
We were not born of fornication. We have one Father, that is God. Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God, for I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I'm saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason you do not hear them, because you are not of God. The Jews answered and said to him, Do we not rightly say that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. But I do not seek my glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died and the prophets also. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste of death. Surely you are not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. And you have not come to know him. But I know him. And if I say that I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. The Jews therefore said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we pray that you will convince us of the truth. And may we understand that we must abide in the word of Christ to truly manifest that we are your disciples. May we do so, and may you grant us the grace to do so. In Jesus' name, amen. In verses 31 and following, Jesus has a further dialogue or debate with his adversaries. These adversaries in verse 31 are called the, those Jews who had believed him. It's very clear, indisputable, from verses 31 to 59 that Jesus' addressees, his hearers, are Jews who had believed him, yet their belief was a false faith, a bad belief. It was not true faith or true belief. It's very evident from our narrative from verses 31 to 59. They claim never to have been enslaved. They claim that their father is Abraham, but they are opposite of Abraham in their faith and in their fruit, the way that they live. 
Abraham never sought to kill Christ, but they want to kill Christ, and then they attempt to do so by the end of the chapter. Abraham did not have Satan as father. They have Satan as their father, verse 44. Abraham knew God. They don't know God, and they cannot hear the voice of God because they don't receive the truth that Jesus preaches. They are liars. Jesus is not a liar. They don't believe. They don't know God. Jesus knows God. These are some of the things that Jesus says to them. It's very, very explicit. From verses 31 to 59, he's addressing those who have a fake faith. Verse 31, those Jews who had believed him. The Bible uses the word faith, belief, disciple, Christian, brother, and so forth, uses words like those to describe those who truly fit those words and those who pretend to fit those words. Because those groups, those kinds of people will always be among us. There will always be among the evident or physical, visible people of God, some who truly are the people of God and others who are not the people of God. But the whole group says they believe. The whole group claims to be disciples. This is the distinction the Bible is making to us from the very beginning of the Bible, from the book of Genesis, from the first family, and throughout the book uh, of the, or the whole books of the Bible, and even into the book of Revelation. There will be true believers and false believers. This is illustrated for us explicitly in verses 31 and following. Having said that, among interpreters, they have some disagreement. Some of them think that verse 30 has to do with true believers. Verse 30 has to do with true believers who, after being told that they must believe in Christ, otherwise they would die in their sins, some of them did believe. Or as it says, many came to believe in him in verse 30. However, we are taking it in our study, we are taking verses 30 to 31 to be connected. That is, those Jews who had believed him in 31 are the Jews he just mentioned who believed in verse 30. Because he also said words of unbelief to them from 21 to 30. And therefore, he's making the connection. The apostle makes the connection between verses 30 to 31 that we're talking about the same group. Let's read it that way. And even if we don't read it that way, we still know that 31 to 59 is addressing bogus believers. Bogus believers. Verse 31, he says, If you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. If you abide, that's a conditional statement. If you remain, if you stay, if you keep attaching yourself to his word, to the word of Christ, if you do so, then you are truly disciples of mine. Firstly, his word. His word is not only his words found here in the book of John or in this chapter. His word is not only the red letters of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
His word includes the whole Bible because the word of Christ is from Genesis to Revelation. We must abide or we must remain, we must attach ourselves, stay consistent with everything from Genesis to Revelation. How do we know when he says my word includes the whole Bible? In 1 Peter 1, 10 and 11, 1 Peter 1, 10 and 11, he said, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come made careful search and inquiry, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. The Apostle Peter, in 1 Peter 1, 10 and 11, he asserts that the prophets had the Spirit of Christ within them, he's meaning the prophets of the Old Testament. Therefore, the prophets of the Old Testament were speaking the words of Christ. If they had the Spirit of Christ, they were preaching the words of Christ. They wrote the words of Christ. Then the apostles. Did the apostles who wrote the New Testament have the Spirit of Christ within them? Therefore, wrote the words of Christ? Yes. John 14, 26. John 14, 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. The Spirit will bring to remembrance to the apostles all that Jesus wanted them to remember and also to write the Spirit of Christ. His word is the whole Bible. We must remain in this, it says. Abide in this. Then we would be truly disciples of Christ. This means if we don't remain in his word, we're not truly his disciples. Correct? Is that not what a conditional statement means? If it begins with if, there is the if and then the then. The if is if you abide in my word. Then the then clause is then you are truly disciples of mine. Which means we're not truly his disciples if we don't remain in his word. If we don't remain in his word, we're not truly his disciples. This means it's necessary to remain faithful to Christ until the end. If we don't remain faithful to Christ until the end, we are not truly his disciples. Matthew 24, 13. He who endures till the end shall be saved. He who endures till the end shall be saved. That requires that we endure till the end. If we don't, then we're not truly his disciples. Hebrews 3. Hebrews chapter 3. On endurance till the end. Hebrews 3, 12 to 14. Hebrews 3, 12 to 14. Take care, brethren 
lest there should be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart in falling away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. In verse 12, he warns us to take care, be on guard, watch out. And who is supposed to do it? Brethren, he says. Brethren or the brothers, the church. He's addressing the church and he's telling them to be careful. Why should the church be careful? Because within the church, as he says, there might be any one of you. Verse 13, any one of you. All who meet as the church do not comprise the true church. There are those who truly believe and those who don't believe. Yet all of them, when they are addressed, they are all addressed as brethren, brothers. Why? Because we're claiming to be and we're meeting as such. And in some ways, we know what it means to be a brother. And we are professing in some way that we are brothers in Christ. That's why everyone is addressed that way. But not everyone is truly that way. That's why he says, there could be, lest there be in any one of you. What? What could there be in the assembly of the brethren? An evil, unbelieving heart. An evil, unbelieving heart. That's the heart of an unbeliever, is it not? He doesn't say a good believing heart. He says an evil unbelieving heart. But for a while, people pretend. For a a while, people go along with it. For a while, people say, yes, I believe. For a while. But what happens in verse 12? They fall away from the living God. They had access to the true and living God, and yet they want to go back, fall back to their dead and lifeless idols. They want to go back to the world, the flesh, and the devil. They want to go back to the way they used to live. He says, make sure that that does not happen to you, to fall away. In the parable, remember the parable of the sower? The seed was scattered. The seed represents the word of God. It was scattered upon four types of soil. Only the fourth soil produced fruit. The other three types fell away in one way or another. They fell away. They abandoned that word that they heard. They abandoned that word that they understood temporarily. They forsook it and walked away from it and went to the world, the flesh, and the devil. What should we therefore do to make sure that none of us falls prey to that. What should we do? Verse 13, Hebrews 3.13. But encourage one another day after day. Encourage one another day after day. We need encouragement by the word 
day after day, every day, because it could be that one day it happens. But the means God uses, the tool or the instrument God uses to sustain us in the faith is not a good meal. It's not a nice house. It's not fun and games. What is the the means that God uses to sustain us so that we are maintained in the faith to the very end? Encouragement. Encouragement in the word of God. Encouragement by the people of God, because he says, one another. Encourage one another. One believer should encourage another believer by means of, with the instrument, the tool of, the word of God. It is the word that encourages us day after day. This will enable us or prevent us from falling away. And we should do it as long as it is still called today. Don't think, well, today or tomorrow, for a week, for a month, for a year, until I'm married or until I have children, until I reach age 40 or 50, until I'm on my deathbed, I'm going to live as I please. We might not have those days ahead of us. It may never happen. We must repent. We must be serious today. Today. Lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. What could happen? If we're not sensitive daily, if we're not tender daily in the things of God, the sin that we pursue, it's so deceitful, it might harden us. We're saying, we might say, well, once I have children, I'll go to church. Once I'm 40 or 50, I'll go to church. When I'm on my deathbed, I'll pray a prayer. But by that point, we might be so hardened in our sin, we might not ever do that, he says. We may never have the desire or the thought to do so at that point. And meantime, sin will so deceive and harden us, it'll call us, uh, cause us to fall away. Then 14, 14. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. In this passage in verse 14, the apostle has turned the phrase around. Jesus said it the opposite way. He said, if you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. Jesus said it in the way we would normally say it. But here the apostle says it in the opposite way. The word order has flipped here. He says, we have become partakers of Christ. That reality, that experience, that conversion, partaking of Christ has happened. We have become partakers of Christ. We may assert it. We might declare it. We might believe it, but on a condition. What's the condition? If we hold fast the beginning of our assurance, firm until the end. If we hold fast, we must cling on to it. Hold fast as though your life depended on it, because it does. 
Cling on to it from the beginning until the end firmly. Grasp onto the faith firmly. The assurance that we had at the beginning, that assurance should be maintained until the end. Another way to rephrase this is to say, if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end, then we have become partakers of Christ. One more way. Sometimes people say it this way. If someone falls away, they never really believed it truly to start. And that is true. If someone falls away, he never truly believed in the gospel at the very beginning. He pretended to believe, and ultimately, eventually, he showed that he didn't truly believe. That's what Hebrews 3.14 is teaching. That's also what Christ our Lord is teaching in John 8.31. He's saying, if you remain in him, then you are truly his disciples. If you don't remain in him, then any claim you've been making throughout your life is false. So let's remain in him. Verse 32. We continue with Jesus' statement to the crowd. Verse 32. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Knowledge of the truth. This is highlighted in John chapter 8. It's not the only place, of course, throughout Scripture. But in John 8, the word truth or true appears many times. This word is emphasized. Jesus is declaring the truth, but the hearers don't want the truth. The hearers are rejecting the truth, and they're digging in their heels against whatever Jesus is saying to them. More and more, they are being hardened when they hear the truth. They are displaying an example of the deceitfulness of sin that is hardening their heart. They're holding on to their sin. They hear the truth. And when they hear the truth, they reject it more and more. They say more and more um, uncouth and unkind and slanderous things against Christ. We saw that when we read the chapter. They did it until... They were so fed up with him that they wanted to stone him to death. That's what's going on. But he's promising them if they know the truth, meaning have come into a true knowledge of it and born again and have faith in this truth, the truth shall make you free. He's offering to them freedom. He's offering to them something good. He's offering to them something that benefits them that they should want and love. But before they want freedom, they have to acknowledge what? That they are slaves. And then when they have to acknowledge that they are slaves, that's when it becomes offensive. That's when they don't like what he's saying. This should not surprise us. This is human nature. When you are offered a benefit 
Often, those who are offered the benefit reject it from the benefactor. Why? Because they're too proud to receive it. Too proud to take it. Someone has a gift to give and the recipient says, no, no, I can't take that. I'm not going to take that. I'm like, why? Because of pride. Sometimes there's other reasons, but let's assume in our scenario that we have pride. I, I'm not going to take that gift from you. You've offered it. I don't want it. Well, it's something good. It's something generous, but you don't want it. Here he's saying, the truth shall make you free. Who doesn't want to be free? It's good. Verse 33. These people don't want to be free because they don't think they need it. Verse 33. They answered him, We are Abraham's offspring and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you shall become free? We are Abraham's offspring. Initially in this narrative, we believe they are meaning it physically, but then they get the point that Jesus means it spiritually later on. But at least right here, they're saying, we are Abraham's offspring and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How in the world could they say that? Because Abraham was told in Genesis 15, 13 to 16. In Genesis 15, 13 to 16, he was told that his descendants would be enslaved in another nation for 400 years. In terms of physical slavery, Abraham's descendants were. That's why Moses was sent hundreds of years later. Moses was sent to Egypt to deliver them from Egyptian bondage, Egyptian slavery. And he did so. He delivered them. Then after that time, if we read the book of Judges, Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles, Judges, Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles, they were enslaved by many nations. The Philistines, the Edomites, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Arameans. They were enslaved by the Assyrians, finally, and destroyed, and also by the Babylonians, by the Persians, by the Greeks, and even now, contemporary to Jesus' ministry, they are enslaved to the Romans. These people are so dead, these people are so blind in their sin that they can't acknowledge that. They make the assertion that they have never yet been enslaved to anyone. They make that claim. They are contradicting an enormous mountain of truth in their own history. And who would do that but someone who is so blinded and so enslaved to his sin? He would say that. Furthermore, they don't understand, which Jesus will explain. They don't understand that worse than physical bondage is spiritual bondage. Worse than physical bondage is spiritual bondage. Whenever they were enslaved in Egypt, whenever they were enslaved by the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and the others, did they not worship idols? Did they not serve other gods? Yes, they did. 
Joshua says that they served other gods beyond the river and in Egypt. Joshua 24, 2. And Joshua 24, 14 and 15. Joshua told them that they were enslaved to other gods in Egypt. So therefore, they were spiritually enslaved. Furthermore, what did they not consider when they say we have never yet been enslaved to anyone? They didn't realize that they were slaves of their own sins. Their worst enemy was not the Babylonians. Their worst enemy was not the Egyptians. Their worst enemy was not the Moabites and the Ammonites. Their worst enemy was themselves. They didn't comprehend that. They were so enslaved to their sin, so blinded by their sin, they could not see that their own souls were slaves to sin. They loved their sin. So, in their objection, how is it that you say, you shall become free? Jesus knew all this. That's why Jesus answers in 34. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. This solemn assertion, truly, truly, I say to you, he wants to drive home this point to them that everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. What's he describing? Is he describing believers or is he describing unbelievers? Is he describing the unregenerate man or the regenerate man? Is he describing the Christian who truly knows Christ or the non-Christian who doesn't know Christ? He's describing the non-Christian, the unbeliever, the wicked, the unregenerate who do not know Christ. This statement, verse 34, was true of us, but not true of us anymore. We were slaves of sin, but now we have become slaves of righteousness. Romans 6, Romans 6, 15 to 23. We were slaves of sin, but now we are slaves of righteousness. He's not speaking of us now. He is speaking of us the way we used to be and the way the world currently is. All the world, all of the unbelieving world, even in Christian churches, they are slaves of sin unless they have been released from that bondage by the miraculous power of God working in them. Slaves of sin. He means, also in 34, he means that it is who we are by nature and status. Our nature is to attach ourselves or to commit sin. Our status, we are slaves and our master is sin. We are slaves of sin. In Genesis 4, verse 7, God warned Cain. He told him, but Sin is crouching at the, at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. He told Cain that. That's the way we are, just like Cain was, and he remained so until he died. That's the way we are and that's the way the world is. 
Sin is our master. This, though, is the truth no one wants to acknowledge. No one wants to acknowledge that he is in bondage. He is enslaved. He is being tyrannized by his own sin. Because the the tyrant of sin has an appeal. The tyrant of sin will say it's good. The tyrant of sin will say there's no punishment. The tyrant of sin will say it's pleasurable. The tyrant of sin will say that there will be much benefit if you remain as you are. That's what the tyrant of sin preaches to us. And what do we do? We flatter ourselves and we say, I have free choice. I have free will. And just like I can choose to get drunk or not choose to get drunk, I can shake off that sin anytime. The tyrant of sin flatters us into thinking, I have free choice. I could quit cussing if I chose to do so, just like that. I have the ability to beat it. Or if I don't want to do it, I'm going to choose to cuss. The tyrant of sin will do the same with sexual sin. I can choose to sin sexually, or I've got the power to resist it, and I won't do it. I have that ability. Whatever our sins are, this is what people think. And sin causes us to think this way, that it's not so bad, it's not so evil, it's not so serious, it's not so grave. The consequences, I'm still going to reach heaven. However, the road might have some potholes on it, but I'll, I'll reach my destination. Yes, you might choose the smooth, the highway of holiness to reach heaven, but I will choose the slower road with potholes, but I'm still going to get to heaven. My road is inconvenient. Yours is a better road. However, your way is one way. If you feel like doing it to each his own, you can do it that way, but I'll do it my way. We're going to heaven. Sin makes us think that way. Being a slave to sin makes us think that way. And Jesus says, you can't release yourself. You're in bondage. We have to shake off this blindness, this deafness, this hard-heartedness in order to overcome sin. And it's impossible for us to do it. It's impossible for us to do it. Not only is it impossible, but the consequences the consequences are detrimental. Verse 35. First, the consequences, 35, and then the ability to overcome in 36. The consequence in 35. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The slave does not remain in the house forever. In slavery, if we study scripture, and even if we study history, 
in slavery, the slave does not typically remain in the house of the master forever, meaning until his death. And then the slave, his family or his sons will not inherit the master's inheritance. At some point, the slave earns enough money to be able to purchase his freedom, and so he won't inherit what the master has. He will go somewhere else. Or if we're talking about the Bible, not only is that possible to purchase one's freedom, but in the year of Jubilee, in the year of Jubilee, all the slaves were released. There would be a proclamation of manumission and they would be all released. They wouldn't stay in that master's house until death and they would not inherit anything from their master. Unless, of course, with exceptions, masters chose to do so. But typically, the custom was not to do so. The slave does not remain in the house to inherit the possessions on and on and on. Who does? The son. The son of the house does remain forever. The free son of the free master, he is the one who inherits, and he remains, and his descendants remain, in that house forever, meaning indefinitely from, from generation to generation. The son remains in the house forever. But if we're slaves of sin, we will not receive a permanent Inheritance. We will not receive an eternal inheritance, he says. He's saying you cannot remain in that condition. Somehow you have to escape from being a slave to being a son. Somehow that transition needs to occur. But it's not the slave who, based on his own will, his own free will, free choice, makes that happen. The master has to make that happen. The master himself has to make that happen. Therefore, how will it happen? Verse 36. If therefore the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. If therefore the Son... Here he means the Son of God. The S of Son in verse 36 should be a capital S... And it should have the definite article, the. The Son, meaning the Son of God, Christ Jesus. If He, if He shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. If we're going to be released from slavery, we need Jesus to do so for us. Jesus has to do so for us. He has to make us free and when he makes us free, we will truly be free. Not falsely, but truly free indeed. This shows that no one can come to the Father unless the Son draws him or, or reveals the Father to him. Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. 10, 21 to 22. Luke 10, 21 to 22. The Son has to make us free. 10, 21. At that very time, 
he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you hid these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to babes. Yes, Father, for thus it was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son or knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son. The key phrase. And anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. In that last part, the Son is the one who wills to reveal the Father. If the Son wills to reveal the Father to the hearer, the hearer will come to know the Father. The same in John 8, 36. If therefore the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. If it is the Son, then we must know the Son of God. We must know His Word. We must have His Spirit. Otherwise, we cannot know the Father. And in verse 36, we cannot become free. The Son has to make us free. Now we must ask, what does it mean to be free? How are we free indeed or truly free? If we are made free by the Son, what does it mean to be free? And for this, we turn to Romans 6. Romans 6. Romans 6, we start at verse 5. Romans 6, 5. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him knowing that having been raised from the dead is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. The apostle emphasizes our identification with the death and resurrection of Christ. If we truly believe that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead for us, then we are united to him. Verse 5, we have become united with him, he says. If we believe this, if that is the case, then we're in Christ and Christ is free. God is free. God is not a slave to anyone. He's not our slave, and he's not a slave to a God higher than him or a God that's on another planet. He's not a slave to anyone. He is truly free. Then if we are in Christ, we become free. That attachment, that bondage, that enslavement to sin disappears. He has made it possible. He has released us. He has done so. Then 
What is the consequence? After we have been freed from sin, then what should we do? Pursue righteousness. We are not slaves of sin anymore. We are slaves of God. He says in 6.13 that we are instruments of righteousness to God. He says in verse 16, we are slaves for obedience. Obedience resulting in righteousness. In verse 17, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed and having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Verse 19, just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. We've been released from slavery to sin and now we are slaves of God in Christ for the sake of the righteousness of God. That's who we are. Jesus explained to us that this kind of slavery to righteousness is not the same as slavery to sin. When people hear this word slavery, they are often turned off, put off, they're disgusted, and they misunderstand what the Bible means. They don't understand because they have never experienced what the Bible is preaching. They reject it because they don't have it personally true in their own life. They are appalled by the thought that we would be slaves of God. They've never heard it, let alone read it in the Bible. They have not at all. But Matthew 11, Matthew 11, Christ our Lord, he actually does explain what it means. Matthew 11, 25 to 30. Matthew 11, 25 to 30, Christ will explain similar words such as we read in Luke, but he expands here in Matthew 11. 25. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you hid these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to babes. Yes, Father, for thus it was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. Remember that phrase. The Son wills to reveal the Father. Then we come to know the Father. 28 now. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest 
for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my load is light. He appeals to us to come to him. We who are weary and heavy laden. Weary and heavy laden. What would make us weary and heavy laden? It would be our sin. Exemplified in Egyptian bondage, which the Bible does. The Bible exemplifies Egyptian bondage and our bondage to sin. It compares the two. Remember, Israel, they had to make bricks. They had to work and slog in the heat of the day all day long to make bricks as slaves of the Egyptians. Then the Egyptians turned up the heat, the human heat on them. They said, not only are you supposed to make bricks and keep the amount of bricks the same all day, every day, but now you have to gather your own straw. We're not going to gather the straw for you. You have to now spend more hours every day to gather the straw and make the same amount of bricks. Your quota is the same, but your burden is even heavier now. You already thought it was miserable and heavy. Now we're making it heavier on you because we know who you are. You're just lazy. What did they also, what did the children of Israel enjoy in Egypt when they grumbled under Moses in the wilderness? Though they had to slog like that, though it was miserable for them, with Moses, this is talking about pretenders. Under Moses, they said, we want to go back to Egypt because we used to eat meat there to the full. We used to eat meat there. We used to eat as much as we wanted. And we had onions and leeks and garlic in Egypt. But now all we have here in this wilderness is this manna. And then we don't have water all the time. This manna. Well, unbelievers think that way. They would rather be under the heat and burden and bondage, be heavy laden and weary, working hours and hours every day, getting only four or five hours of sleep because they have to rise up early and retire late every day in the heat of the day, making bricks, gathering straw, and being whipped and battered and bruised by the rods and the whips of their taskmasters in order to accomplish their task every day. But they get to eat meat. And they'd rather have meat and slavery than what? Release from slavery, thankfulness and gratitude to God for release from slavery, and then eat whatever God provides and be content with what God provides. They don't want that. Jesus is offering here, he's saying, I will take the heavy and wearisome burden of sin from off your backs. I will take that, and then you take my yoke. You learn from me. I am gentle and humble in heart. I'm not going to be harsh and proud and beat you and whip you all day long and make sure that you produce what I want you to produce. No, I'm not going to be that way. You shall find rest for your souls. 
Why? Because my yoke is easy and my load is light. Yoke is easy and load is light. Who would look at the yoke and load of Christ as easy and light? But one who has been converted. One who has been released from his bondage to sin. The one whom the Son wills to reveal the Father. In his mind, whatever sins he used to practice, now it's bitter in his mouth. It's nauseous to his nostrils. It is bitter and harsh to his soul. And he says, I'm disgusted with that. I don't want to be drunk anymore. I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm not going to practice sexual sin anymore. I'm not going to have a foul mouth anymore. I'm not going to gamble anymore. I'm not going to go out with the boys anymore and do all the filthy and rotten things we used to do. I'm not going to do any of that. I'm not going to be materialistic anymore. On and on. And I don't want to do it. I don't want to because God changed my heart and I know that the yoke of Christ is easy, the load of Christ is easy. I am a happier man now than I used to be. And I am happy and content living my tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. I'm going to mind my own business, do what I need to do for my own personal holiness, for the holiness of my family, benefit the church, the local church, and live as a good citizen. And I'm going to be happy because I'm content in Christ. I'm not going to be chasing all of the wild and fabulous dreams of the world. It doesn't matter to me anymore. I'm not going to indulge my flesh and I'm not going to have this wearisome and heavy laden burden on me anymore. That is the new mind. That is the new heart. That's the new disposition of a converted person, a new believer. One who has been made free by Christ. This is what Jesus is offering not only to his audience, but to all of us. This has been offered from the beginning of the Bible till the end of the Bible. The saints of old live this way. The saints of old, many of them practice wickedness before their conversion, but God changed them and they became completely different after their conversion. We should all want this. We should all ask for this. We should all preach this. This is the true gospel. The true gospel must be preached according to God's word, accurately, for true conversion to come to the hearers. Let's do so. Let's pray for that in ourselves, our loved ones, and anyone we meet. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.